Well, good morning, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. As Jeremy said, I am Mark Lindgren. I serve as the staff chaplain here at the King's Christian Academy. And I'm a new member here at RGBC. And it's good to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. Specifically, we're going to open up to 1 John. So here at RGBC, we have been in a series for a while now, for about a month. We took a break last week to hear from Brother Stu give a message on, first, or on 2 Corinthians. But we'll be back in 1 John today in chapter 2. Now this letter, 1 John, it was written by the Apostle John, an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry and one of the closest in the inner circle to Jesus before he ascended into heaven. Now John's likely writing this book from Ephesus, a city in modern-day Turkey, and he's writing a message to a number of churches to assure them in their faith in Jesus, to encourage them to keep away from spiritually destructive behavior, and to help them see the markers of those who have proved by their actions to not be believers. Now, as Pastor Adam mentioned in the first sermon in the series, 1 John doesn't read like a lot of the other letters that we have in the New Testament. It feels almost like a sermon that John delivered and, and, and that was cleverly adapted and written down to be distributed. So the, the letter, it keeps bringing up the same themes in a way that seems a bit repetitive, but every time we circle around to one of these themes, themes like God, God's character or to, to sin or to the commandments of Jesus, something new gets woven in. We've got a new encouragement we have a new warning or a new instruction to consider. But let's get to our text today. We're going to be in 1 John 2, verses 12 through 17. It reads, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word today. We pray that your spirit would guide us into truth as we meditate, meditate on it this morning. God, may you use it to form us more into the image of Christ today for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Now, I wonder what your relationship to the trends of fashion is. Now, my relationship is a bit unique. So if being a hipster is being into something before it was cool, I'm whatever it is to be into something just as it's about to go out of fashion. 
Now, it's better late than never, I suppose, but the trends, they come and go, and I only seem to catch on to the tail end of them. Now, some fashion trends last longer than others, but there's one trend that I wish was a passing fad, and that would be those ugly things called Crocs. Now, I just don't understand the appeal of these plasticky shoes best suited for a children's water park. And people pair them with socks, and then even worse, they try to incorporate them into a business casual outfit. Now, I mean, this is not okay. We should not let people walk around like that. Now, Crocs aren't the only embarrassing part of a getup that you may have hiding in the back of your closet. We all, I'm sure, can look back on threads that we're ashamed of. Now, I think of the tan corduroys that I wore back in the day because I wasn't very fond of jeans. That really was not the best look. Neither were the sky blue KCA uniforms that we had to wear when I was a student. Now, the plaid skirts that girls had to wear were even worse. And I mean, if you came to school here at that point, you just could not be obsessed with your self-image. You just had to give that up. But fortunately, those colors have gone out of style here. But clothes and embarrassing outfits, that's one thing. The way that we loved an outfit that others thought looked ridiculous or how hard that we bought into a passing fad, those memories are almost certainly going to give us more of a laugh than anything else. But our actions are different. For many of us, we look back on our lives and we see actions that we bought into that were a passing fad. Now, it says that hindsight's 2020. That makes us painfully aware of many of the mistakes that we've made. It shows us the pain that we've caused ourselves and others. It causes us to look back and to wish we had considered our actions more carefully. To think about what lasts and what's worth sacrificing for. What just comes and goes and should be treated as such. Now, if you're a Christian today and you feel that way about your past, you're going to hear an encouragement right off the bat in this message. And you're going to hear a reminder of your identity in Christ that can give you freedom from your past. And then we're going to hear an instruction to keep you from making similar mistakes in the future so that you can make choices that really will age well. And if you don't consider yourself a Christian, I hope that this message will show you something that Christianity has to offer you. A new identity that will help you live for what really matters. Because as we'll see today, Christianity offers a new relationship with God and each other through the gospel. And it calls us out of a destructive world system that's passing away. It gives us a new understanding of who we are in the gospel and it calls us away from the passing fads of our world that we will soon be ashamed of. So we're going to see this in our two sections of, of this passage in 1 John. First, we're going to see that Christians have a new identity in the gospel. And second, how Christians can avoid loving a world that's passing away. So let's begin with the first half of our passage. We're going to review 1 John 2, 12 through 14 to see that Christians have a new identity in the gospel. Okay, so John begins. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 
I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, just as I read that, we saw a lot of repetition in this passage where we see a formula. It's I'm writing to you because. And John addresses you as little children, fathers, and then young men. And then he does so again a second time around. Now, all of that shows us pretty clearly that this is a poem. So John has just spoken in this letter about light and darkness. He's talked about how to recognize whether one is in the light by how they treat fellow believers. And then he breaks out of that into this two stanza poetic encouragement to fellow followers of Jesus. Now the poetic nature of this text, it makes it the most easily memorized passage of this letter. And I think that's significant because most of John's original audience, they couldn't read. The letter was read aloud to them. It was explained to them in church gatherings by a church leader. So this section would be one that'd be able to ring in the ears of the letter's hearers long after they sat down to listen to it. But there's two aspects to this important encouragement that I want to break down with you. And they both relate to the relational terms that are used in this passage. So again, John addresses different, he addresses um, these different types of people. He addresses children, fathers, and young men. But when he's doing so, he isn't just calling out specific groups within the congregation, right? If that was the case, mothers and middle-aged men, they might feel that John's leaving them out. Now, what John's doing here is far more poetic. So he's going to take common ideas about children and about fathers and about young men. And he's going to play off those common ideas to unpack truths of the gospel that apply to all believers. Now, if you know anything about the gospel, I hope that you know that it's about Jesus's finished work and how that makes possible a believer's new relationship with God. And it's that new relationship with God that gets unpacked here, starting with those first lines. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, when some people think of children, they think of innocence. Other more experienced people think of that look of willful disobedience on their child's face, and they change their view of children accordingly. We all know kids are often doing things that they should not do. Don't touch, don't touch that hot stove, right? Use your words, not your hands. Take that thing out of your mouth. It's not nice to tell people they're ugly, even if it's true, right? When some people think of children, they think of innocence, but we all know that children are often making mistakes, and as such, they often need to be forgiven. When they come to their mom in the cutest voice possible, they say, I'm sorry, mommy. But that same familial relationship of children needing and receiving forgiveness from a loving parent, that's what Christians are invited into in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're in Christ, those actions in your past that you're absolutely ashamed of, you can bring them before God 
and know your sins are forgiven. Whatever you've done this morning that was unkind or stupid or disrespectful, you can bring that before God and be forgiven. And notice that it isn't for your sake. It's for God's sake that your sins are forgiven. So you are his because you're his child. You're called by his family name. His reputation is somewhat on the line by how you act. And so he has every interest in you coming to him and you confessing your sin so that he can continue the good work that he started in you in transforming your life. Let's look to the next line. It says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Now we all know that dads are old. And I can say that because I'm not a father. But we can see the connection here. Fathers who have been around a long time know him who is from the beginning. Now you may be old enough to joke that you've been around since the dinosaurs, but An amazing truth is that all of us in Christ know him who is from the beginning. The one who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. Who knows our form. How frail and weak and needy we are because he made us. And through sending Jesus to die and rise again for our sins, he's called us to know him personally. The next line. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Young men, I'm told, are known for their strength. There's a reason why our armed forces aren't filled with the same people that occupy the chairs in Congress, because frail old men are exactly the best people to fight our nation's wars. But notice here what John is saying. He says, I'm writing to you because you have overcome the evil one. So look at it. It's not phrased as if young men are going to overcome because they're strong enough to fight in this war against the evil one. Now it's phrased like they've already overcome. That seems pretty strange, right? How is this possible? Now we can look later in the book to see. Let's go to 1 John 5, 4. 1 John 5, 4. It says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So it's not just true for young men that they overcome the world. The victory that John is talking about is not one of physical strength, but in being born of God. It's a victory that comes through something that empowers the believer to overcome. God-given faith. So if you're in Christ, God's given you an indescribable gift, one that brings victory not just over your sin and over your selfishness, but over the evil one himself, the devil and all of his lies. If you've been captured by God's hand of faith, nothing and no one and not even the devil himself can snatch you out of his hand. Now, John's second stanza gives us the same address with some subtle variations. It says, I write to you children because you know the Father. And that reminds us of the beauty of this new relationship with God that we've been called into. We are his children and he is our Father. 
I write to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. Now this is repeated from the first stanza and it reminds us of the power and the sovereignty of the God who we know and who knows us. And the last part, since I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now that part, it adds two lines to what we saw in the first stanza and it finishes this encouragement off in a flurry. You are strong. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, if you're in Christ and you've let the gospel of Jesus Christ settle deep down into your heart, the spirit of God gives you a strength powerful enough to overcome the devil, right? Even if you feel weak and tired, if you feel like your body is fading away, this truth of the gospel is true of you. If you've got that saving faith in Christ, you are strong. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Brothers and sisters, this identity that we have been given in Christ is something that we need to constantly be reminded of. These are truths that we need to celebrate because not only are they gonna keep us from loving the world, as we'll see in a second, but they're also going to tie us together into this new family of God. Because our identity in the gospel doesn't just mean a new relationship with God. It means a new relationship with each other. Together, believers are children of God. There are little children, fathers, young men among us, and so many more. And we're part of this same family, God's family. Now, the expression of that family in this local church, it may be filled with more engineers than my liking, but I'm commanded to love you all anyway. In fact, we're commanded throughout the book of John to love our brothers and sisters in Christ because our expressions of concern and care for each other is a primary marker that the love of God resides inside us and that we are his children. Okay, so now as we transition into this next part of our passage, right after this poetic encouragement that we've heard, we're going to hear the first imperative in 1 John. So what that means is that this is the first direct instruction in the letter to do or not to do something. Now to this point in John's letter, we haven't received a direct command. John's offered deep theology, some helpful teaching, this poetic encouragement. He even talked about the old, yet in some ways new commandment that he's writing. But even there, John spoke about walking as Jesus walked and loving your brothers and sisters in Christ as a marker of whether one's a truly a believer. In verse 15, that's the first verse where we see command language, as you can see. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So this command, it introduces the second point of our passage. That Christians must avoid loving the world that is passing away. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. So this is a command about something to avoid. A very direct warning. And I want you to notice three things about this warning. 
First, as we see in verse 15, this is a warning about what we love. Now, I want us to contrast that warning to how many people think about what it means to be Christian, right? They think that it means don't do this, don't do that. What things do Christians not do? Well, that list could be vastly different depending on the person that you ask, right? For someone old enough, it could be never going to a dance, not listening to rock and roll, and not having music with drums. Now, fortunately, here at RGBC, we struck a compromise. Electric drums are okay because we can turn them down if they ever feel too pagan. Now, people outside of the church, they think about Christians as having this don't do this and this don't do that identity as well. And it contributes to this cultural understanding of Christians as these goody two-shoes people who are all about ruining the fun of others. Now, I don't want you to be confused here. What Christians do is important. So there are lists of unchristian behavior in the New Testament, but there are often different things than Christians are known for restricting today. And John gives us throughout this letter markers of what Christians should be known for doing. But John is primarily concerned here in this warning, not about what we do, but what we love. This command goes far deeper than the surface level that we often focus on. Now, I want you to think about, think about this this way, okay? So if you gave your teenage daughter this blanket restriction, you said, you can't hang out with that guy anymore. You can't do any of the stuff with he's doing. You're not allowed to, and that's final, no discussion. Okay, so that would be one thing. But if you told your teenage daughter, don't love that guy or anything that he's about, He's got a track record of using girls, not treating them with respect. He isn't worthy of your love. That would be different. Now, it might be more awkward, but it's a command that reaches to the affections rather than just the actions that exist on the surface. And just like a good mother would want to be careful about who her daughter's affections were for, So John is concerned about what the believers in these churches have affections for. Because what they love is at the root of what they do. Now, as James K.A. Smith points out in his book, You Are What You Love, we often do not love what we say we love or even what we think we love. Our actions may be influenced by our thoughts, but they run deeper into who we are. And so John gives us this warning about what we love. And and when we see that, we've got to be willing to look deeper than the surface level and honestly examine what we actually value and what we really love. But if in doing that, if we find some disturbing affections, if we find things that we love that, that make us nervous or confused or ashamed about ourselves, there's good news. If you find affections that are ugly, that are malformed, that are out of step with who you are in Christ, those loves can be reformed, reshaped, remolded. Now, for some reason, we've we've, we've, lost our ability to think about love this way in our culture. We speak about love as if our affections for someone or for something were always deep down there, and that we just They just need to be discovered and expressed for us to be who we truly are. But if you think about it, right, our love for anyone 
or anything. It's never deep down inside of us, just fully formed, just waiting to be expressed. Right? Love is more like a plant. It grows. Right? It may be something that shoots up in favorable soil, but it needs a nurturing hand to grow strong, healthy, and unwavering. We nurture our love for people in our relational habits. Likewise, we nurture our love for our hobbies in our commitment to learning more about them and then our continual practice of them. But our loves can also be like weeds popping up in random places without intentional nourishing. We could end up feeding the weeds through our lazy consumption of whatever media comes our way. And then we often pluck off the surface level of those weeds to make ourselves look respectable for a moment or two, rather than digging up the soil, nurturing those roots to keep those weeds from growing back altogether. And even if we aren't careful, we can let good loves become bad by allowing them to, to crowd out all the other plants in the garden. We've got to watch out for the invasive nature of some affections as they can very quickly spread and starve out the other beautiful and meaningful things in our lives. Now, if our loves are like plants and our heart is the garden, then we must commit to being good gardeners, whether we have a green thumb or not. Because Jesus came to save us, not only from our sins, but also from our deceitful hearts and our deceptive desires, so that we can walk in the way in which he walked. So this is a warning about what we love. But more specifically, it's a warning about loving the world. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Now you can see that John's being very serious here. Now this negative command, it's so serious that he says doing the opposite is a marker that a person does not love the Father. So these two loves, the love of the world and the love of God are in competition with each other. One has to win. And so that means that love of, or that, that means avoiding love of the world is an essential thing to being a Christian. But a good question to ask is, what is the world? So we don't get too much help here from the word in Greek because that word's very general. It's not very specific. So to understand what John means, we have to look at how this word is used in the New Testament. So we're going to find a helpful example from Paul's writings in the book of Ephesians. So let's look at how Paul uses this word world in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. So keep an eye out for that word. Verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, you might recognize this part of Ephesians 2. It's the before picture for all Christians in this excellent explanation of the gospel message. 
But Paul says that all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. As such, we were following the course of this world, right? Or as N.T. Wright translates it in his translation of the New Testament, he puts the world's present age. Now, explaining more about the world's present age, Paul says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So as you can see here, the world in this passage has almost nothing to do with the physical planet that we live on, but it has something to do with the world system that people are caught up in. So to be of the world in this sense would be to be separated from God, to be controlled by the enemy, enslaved to your own desires, and walking away from who God made you to be. Now, Paul points out in the rest of Ephesians 2 that God saved the believer out of the world system in his rich mercy and great love. God made us alive together with Christ. He called us out of our deadness and our enslavement to our desires. He called us out of the world to be part of his family so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. So now that we've been called out of that deadness and out of our slavery to our desires, away from the world system, John warns us, don't go back. Don't slip into loving what you used to love or into loving new things that only characterize a life that's behind you. Now to help us get more specific in understanding those things that we aren't supposed to love, John gives us these three categories that help us discern within ourselves what's of the world and what's of God. So let's break these down quickly because I think they're going to be really helpful in diagnosing the condition of our hearts. First, let's do this, the desires of the flesh, or it can be translated, what the flesh desires. Now, don't get scared off by that word flesh, right? There's no pound of flesh being required here. It simply refers to these normal desires of the human body. But it's these very natural desires that are so often at the root of destructive or immoral behavior. If we take these desires and if we let them just grow uncontrolled in our lives, we're very likely to find our hearts have become tangled, unkempt gardens rather than orderly, purposeful places. Now, I know that this goes against the grain of our culture. We live in this marketing culture that always says, you deserve this. Especially if it's sexy, or it's sugary, or it's 140 characters or less, or if it's only consumed in 15 second snippets. But that blanket statement of you deserve this, right? It's clearly wrong for many people. We all know people who consume too much of those things and who need to stop telling themselves, you know what, I deserve an extra large Coke today. Or I deserve to be able to buy more stuff from Amazon. Or I deserve to be comforted by another raging tweet against Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Take your pick. Okay, we need to think far more carefully about our desires than to just give in to them. Simply giving in to your desires, it's not a recipe for freedom and happiness. A much better approach A more Christian approach is to question our bodily desires thoroughly. So what our desires do is they give us some really helpful signals. And they often show up. uh, They also tell us what we're missing in our lives. So they tell us like, 
Maybe I haven't eaten enough this morning, or maybe it's time to get away for a vacation soon, or that we're lonely, that we have too little human connection in our lives. But there's a right way to respond to those desires. And it's all too easy to give into something that's just easy in the short term rather than making the right long-term decision. Let's move on to the second diagnostic tool. It's the desires of the eyes. Now this refers to our tendency to get caught up in showy and glamorous things. But to use an intentional pun, we're often being short-sighted. What often looks pretty and shiny on the outside can be dark and disgusting on the inside. Now we might get caught up in thinking about things when we think about the desires of the eyes, but John's readers weren't trapped in this marketing culture and this culture of consumerism. They lived in, the, in a world where the showy things were lifestyles, jobs, positions, empires. The stories that people would tell about glory, about success, righteousness, sensuality, importance. These stories had little effect on Jesus as he walked the streets of Galilee. To the dignitas of the Roman emperor, Jesus said, give him back his coins. God's put his insignia on humanity himself. To the rich man's success, Jesus was like, yeah, you know what? This only makes it harder to see the priceless worth of following after me. To the Pharisees' righteousness, Jesus told them, you know what? This is all a facade and it's just covering up your spiritually dead souls. To the prostitute's sensuality, Jesus knew it was scandalous to some, but he told her that her sins were forgiven when she surrendered to him. Pilate's importance? Jesus knew that Pilate would have no authority over him at all if God had not handed his son over to the authority to be killed for the sins of his people. Now Jesus spoke in his ministry about a spiritual blindedness that people often had. A problem with their view of the world that kept them from seeing what God was really up to. Now in our culture, stories abound. We've got stories of glory, success, righteousness, sensuality, importance. You know what, we consume these stories at a rate that no one has ever consumed them in all of human history. Even if we aren't particularly good or qualified storytellers, we're cajoled by social media companies to post a new story every day to craft a narrative of our lives that evokes the most awe out of our friends, out of our neighbors, and that guy who went to school with us in third grade. To be influencers, even if we have no idea how we might actually want to influence people. But we need the spiritual vision to be able to see through the showy and superficial stories that are all around us. We need the glasses that Jesus had on Otherwise, we could easily get swept up in another story, one with a much more depressing ending than the story that's God's writing that he's revealed to us in his word. And the final diagnostic tool to help determine the state of our hearts is the pride of life. Now, that phrase does a really good job of defining itself. It's pride in my life. This overconfidence in my place in the world, my wealth, my resume, my picturesque family, my beautiful house, my fully funded retirement plan. My millennials in the room are like, ha, 
as if. But our prosperity, our level of comfort and entitlement in the world, it's dangerous. Now in the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis helps us see why. So in that book, Lewis, he's using, he uses this clever literary device of an experienced demon, screw tape, advising an inexperienced one about the best way to tempt a person. So in one letter, Screwtape writes this. He says, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it, while it's really finding its place in him. His increased, increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work, build up in him a sense of really being ho at home in earth, which is just what we want. So beware in your pursuit of a good life that you build up a sense that this world is your home. If you feel that you're finding your place in it, watch out. The world may be finding its place in you. Now making your home on earth is just what the enemy wants because of what verse 17 says. Verse 17, it says, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now this is our final point. This is a warning about a world that is passing away. The state of this world is not permanent. It's passing away. There's no reason to catch on to this fad now. It's already on the way out. John says back in verse eight of this chapter, he says, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That true light is Jesus and he shines through the present darkness. In his light, we find freedom from our slavery to our desires. We find power to live according to the will of God. In the light of Jesus, we find life that doesn't end in the present age, but will carry us through to the age to come. Loving the world may feel easier in the moment, but with Jesus' perspective, Christians can't help but smell the stench of death in fully surrendering to their desires. In those flashy stories with sad endings, and in being so comfortable with their privilege that this world feels all too much like home. If you can hone that sense of smell, it can help you determine what's worth living for and what's just a waste of time. It can keep you from loving a world that's passing away so that you can put your hope in Jesus who offers you life forevermore. Now, brothers and sisters, we have an incredible identity in Christ. Right? The first part of that passage encouraged us by showing us the new relationship with God and each other that we have been gifted through Jesus. And if you find your diagnosis in the second half of the passage as disturbing as I do, you find yourself in the right place this morning. Here, gathered around God's word, worshiping with his people in this sacred opportunity that we have to reshape our loves, to realign them, with our identity in Christ. If you're scared by how enamored you are by the things of this world, you won't find freedom from that by looking to the world. You need to look elsewhere. 
So lean into the gifts that God's given you. The body of Christ, the revealed word of God, the invitation to speak with God in prayer, confession, repentance, assurance in his grace. These habits have the power to shape your affections so that you begin to love what God loves and walk in the way that Jesus walked. But perhaps you're not a believer today or you're just kicking the tires on Christianity. Well, I hope today you've seen a little bit of what Christianity offers you, if you would believe. Not just a place to be on Sunday mornings, and certainly not just a list of things not to do, but the gift of a new identity as a child of God that can serve like a compass to help you live for what really matters. This world is passing away but a new one is coming. One where all the things that are wrong about this one have long gone out of style. One where those of us in Christ will see with crystal clarity how foolish our love affairs with the present age of the world really were. Really were. One where our deepest longings and our deepest needs will be met in ways that we never imagined. And if you and I, if we can give up our deadly grip on these dying worldly desires and hand them over to Christ, we'll receive back in the present and in the age to come something more beautiful and more lasting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for John's encouragement and his warning that we've been able to focus on today. Help those of us in Christ to constantly remind ourselves and rejoice that we are your forgiven children, that we know you who made us in the beginning, that we are strong because of the faith that you have given us, that we are brothers and sisters in the family of God. May that identity shape what we love so we might live for what lasts, not for the things that are passing away. Give us the grace to be able to build into our lives habits that grow our loves for you and uproot our love for the things of this world. And for those among us who don't yet know or follow Jesus, would you show them who he is? Show them how he lives so they can consider the new way of life that he offers. And as we remember Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf, may we not miss this chance that we have to treasure him over the desires of this world, over every other competitor for our affections. And as we go from this place, would you give us a fresh hope and a new conviction to follow the way of Jesus? Amen.